Welcome to the House of Style podcast, a conversation series where we talk to prominent Australian interiors figures about their design journey, what inspires them and where they're headed. This is a deep dive into their past, present and futures, discussing what it takes to become an iconic figure in today's interiors landscape. With our background as style editors, we've crossed paths with some incredible furniture and homewares brands, designers, artists and makers. This is our way to share their inspiring stories with you, the listener. I'm interior stylist, Kerri-Ann Jones. And I'm interior designer, Jono Fleming. And welcome to the House of Style. We're back with another episode of House of Style. So this was a really interesting one because we got to record in one of the most stylish offices in Sydney, I reckon. Oh my gosh, yes. We sat down with Jeremy Bull, who is the director of celebrated interiors firm Alexander & Co. in his HQ, Alexander House. It's a terrace house meets office that showcases the Alexander & Co. signature style. Yeah, it's one of these incredible concept spaces that... Jeremy and his team can invite clients to to really experience what it's like being inside one of their finished projects. And this chat with Jeremy took us on some really amazing turns, talking about the bigger picture of what it means to run a successful firm nowadays and the legacy that he intends to leave. This episode is kind of like our episode with Colin King, where it was hard not to be distracted by our surroundings and the beautiful interiors. I know, right? I kept staring up at the ceiling, looking at these timber beams that were there. And I was like, no, it's got to stay focused. So let's stay focused now and get to it. Enjoy our chat with Jeremy Bull from Alexander & Co. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us on House of Style. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. We are at your beautiful HQ at... Stunning. Alexander House. But to start... Can you take us back to the beginning? Can you tell us about your childhood, where you grew up, and what what was all of that like mm. for you? Yeah, sure. Maybe my earliest memories. So I was born in the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia, in Riyadh. My mum and dad were expats. Yep. My dad was a doctor, and they had lived in the States, where my older brother was born. And then uh, me and my younger brother were born in Riyadh, in Saudi Arabia, living in various what we call they were called compounds in in Riyadh, where the expats would live. So earliest memories are being raised in the various compounds in this expatriate communities in Riyadh and running from house to house and doing what you do as a I left there when I was seven moved to Sydney in 1985 mm-hmm. so I've been in Sydney since 1985 but certainly my mo- most formative memories are the desert wow it's insane mm. Did How not know about no, me neither. Because yeah. I know that we went to the same school <laughs> yeah. later, but that is a very different starting point. Yeah. I thought this was going to start. Have, have you been back since? Not, not, not back to Saudi. We obviously did the project in Dubai. Yes. I haven't been back to Saudi and have purposely not taken projects. that We've been asked if, on a couple of occasions to work in Saudi and, and have made the choice not to actually do that. Yeah. But, I, look, I had really... Uh, wonderful memories actually of living in, in a really different way to how we live here maybe it's more much more suburban actually when you're living in the compounds with other expatriate western families it was much more like you'd run from house to house and yeah, the, the yeah. community spaces because the gated communities were really safe and yeah and so actually my memories of of zero to seven or whatever to seven are of just having a lot of fun and a lot of time in the desert sitting on people's laps, driving four-wheel drives and hanging out in these compounds and going to an American school. Beautiful, positive, easy memories. 
So how was that culture shock when you then, as a family, immigrated to Australia? What was... Or move back to Australia for... Well, well I had never been here. Because you'd never been. I think yeah. I maybe had visited, but like, I, I had no recollection. We travelled a lot from the Middle East on holiday, but to come to Australia in 85, I, I don't know if I, I would describe it as a culture sh- shock. I think that at, at the age of seven, I think it's everything is a new first-time experience. You just adapt, don't you? Yeah, nothing yeah. is really registers. I, I think it was not until later that you start to build some consciousness around your experience and you're able to reflect on it. But no, I yeah. think it was it was a fairly easy experience. I had grandparents alive at that time and they became part of life. And I went from a American public-style school to a all-boys private school on the yeah. North Shore. And I think that was probably the biggest culture shock that unraveled over the next 12 years was just what it meant to be in a old-school patriarchal private institution yes maybe that was the the, the place where I, I i grew various memories of this doesn't feel like a natural fit yeah there's a very separate conversation to design and all of that but i know our school motto was the manly thing is being done and i was yeah. like oh, very really agita that, that feels serious? really really oh off goodness. in the 2023 yeah. landscape <laughs> i get when they started that school it was a very, it meant something different but now that just doesn't seem to a lot, yeah. Like I, the same way. <laughs> like I think the role of breaking down old systems tends to lag and it tends yeah. to be slow. And if a system has functioned for a while, being brave enough to break a system like a private boys' school and re-enculturate those systems, I think they they move slowly. Yeah. Certainly, the school that that we went to, Jono, had its fair share of those old problems. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, were you creative as a kid? Growing up, my memories are I was very introverted, mm-hmm. and and my earliest memories actually I've always drawn, so I've always drawn with pencils. And and back in even Saudi, when my mum used to get aerobics because that's what you did, and then leotard, I would just sit and draw. Yeah. So I, I have really strong memories of always having drawn, and I have really strong memories of never having been very good with people. And so sitting with a pad of pen and drawing and finding my own space has always been a really easy space for me in the recollections that I have of my youth and and probably still is a pretty good fit for me now. Yeah. And so did you, when you were in high school, that you wanted to move into architecture or what was the next step, the transition out of high school? Uh, look, I don't think I even knew in high school that architecture was a phenomenon, to be honest. I had done various other work experience in like financial firms and, and even working through my HSC, which I was, I was a pretty mediocre student. I was pretty average at, at, at school. I had a, a pretty terrible time in high school, really struggled with the culture of, of where I was. I was not a very sporty kid and probably at that point also not a very academic kid. I was a, I was a very good drinker and, <laughs> and pretty good at systematically just hobbling myself and, and, self-sabotaging. So I think by the time I got to high school and HSC specifically, I wasn't very good academically and and more or less just spun the wheel, put five or so very different. I can't remember what they were called when you were club, apply for universities, like psychology, finance, engineering, architecture. It was yeah. a total pot yeah. shot. Yeah, yeah. And architecture came out. It was one of the ones that I had a score for in the HSC and so I just elected to do it. Yeah. And I think even there... So the architecture degree when I did it was Bachelor of Science in Architecture, a year of practical experience, and then 
two years or so of the what's now a master's, but Bachelor of Architecture, it was five or six years. And I think it took me about the first four to work out if I actually wanted to do it. So I yeah. think that, that really I kicked tires for, for about four years and maintained my pedigree as a pretty average student. And it was like the tipping point was probably in my, the fifth of the six years. I, I started dating a girl who was a very, very passionate architect. And I had the benefit of being tutored by a couple of teachers who were very, very passionate and took the time and saw something in me that I definitely hadn't seen in myself to advocate for me within university. And so in my fifth year, truly after more or less gliding by for the first four, I felt the experience and the impact of advocacy. And I felt the the inspiration of, of being surrounded by people who actually cared what they were doing, which I was not very good at. And so I started to fall in love with the trade in, yeah. in year five, year six of this, this six year degree. So I'm like, at that point, I'm 24 and I've worked in the industry, even just in work experience. I, I work as a pre-grad in the industry as well, part-time, but it wasn't until it wasn't until I felt advocacy and felt the support and the belief of someone else yeah. who I really looked up to that I'm like, actually, maybe I could make a go of this. Yeah, yeah wow. It's amazing how that made such a, a big impact for you to really move forward with it. I don't think it would have happened without that. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for advocating for young people. I think it, my experience, which is limited to me only, is that we are we are born imperfectly and and takes a long time to have any belief in ourselves and sometimes it it takes someone else to see it for you to go maybe there's something there and certainly for me that was the experience that I had with these particular tutors and it was a a turning point which then probably changed my trajectory for the next 20 years. I mean also when you're saying that you're doing a five six year degree as well I think almost forget sometimes you're like oh yeah it's lawyers and doctors that <laughs> do these long long courses to yeah. get their qualifications and then then you start and then like once you finish your degree at being a doctor then you start doing your interning and stuff and yeah. it's like it's actually the same as yeah. different work but it's the same length and process of being an architect and a designer sometimes of they are long degrees yeah. you have a lot to learn yeah and then once you get out you're at the bottom of the yeah i think it took me a long time to realize what the value of what that university degree was like i think for a long time after joining the industry i was really cynical about the format of that education i think if it did nothing the one thing it does is test you to have the endurance to stay with it yeah yeah And, and i think one of the things that 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 no shorter degree can do is to create a context where you have to keep turning up for a long time. And it's probably one of the, the greatest lessons that I think I see, particularly in the younger people in the industry around us is you've got to turn up for, for a long time and you've got to turn up consistently for a long time to get anywhere meaningful. I think at least measuring it from my experiences, you certainly just can't, be a rock star day one or, yeah. or even year one or even year 10. Yeah. And so the concept of endurance and of turning up consistently, if it did nothing else that taught me that was that this was going to be a long game. And I certainly think that concept of a long game, or to coin Simon Sinek, the infinite game, like the concept of how do you turn something from 
from a minute to a life cycle mm -hmm. within an industry or any industry, I think is an important lesson. How does this endure and how does it be meaningful and purposeful for a long time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, look, absolutely. I, my partner's on the last stretch of interior architecture and it is just that it is endurance now because he's like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm over it. And yeah. I'm like, you are so close to the end. Yeah. You've just got to keep going. I know. And because he's already working in the industry, I get that it can seem frustrating, yeah. but it, you're right. It's just endurance. And I'm like, don't give up at the end. Yeah. It's, it takes so much and it is such a mental load of, yeah. The design stuff um but as you guys know as as the owners of your own business it's it's what you do consistently over time that matters and so the lesson in in all of this is you've got to be able to endure and you've got to be able to keep turning up and just nothing good is built quickly and so yeah not quitting at the end but also i think that one of the false economies is believing that when you graduate uni suddenly there is some release and it's all back to normal. Then you start the next version, which is yeah. worth Don't a lot. tell Ryan that. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Before we started recording, we were just saying, as you progress in your careers, things can come easier to you and things like that, but things don't always get easier. We build ourselves to a level that we want to keep challenging ourselves. And I think as creatives, the moment yeah. we stop getting challenged, it's all over. Yeah. <laughs> Time to move on because... And look, our context moves with us. I think when you're at uni and your context is maybe around tuition and maybe the context for some people, not everyone, is simpler. As you move into a more complex context or as you build skill, you build a more complex context around you. So I think there is a sense that I'm trying to escape something I can never really escape from. And I may as well just settle in. No matter what I do, if I'm learning and growing, it's going to be hard mm -hmm. in just in a different way. And it's going to recontextualize itself continuously. But I think the, the first thing is getting comfortable with the fact that this is the reality that I'm going to exist in. It's always going to challenge me. I'm going to have days where I'm totally exhausted and depleted, no matter whether I'm a student. I've been doing this for 23 years now. It's, it hasn't backed off. Yeah. It's just changed shape. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So after you did finish your degree, what was your first job? I worked for Andrew Burgess, still Andrew Burgess Architecture at ABA. Andrew was a tutor at university, extraordinarily talented guy and, and really seminal in teaching me how to draw. He held a pen. He held a, a Lamy pen, which is a fountain pen that we still use as one of the pens that we use now. And he, he taught me a lot on how to meditate on these creative discussions. He was a very beautiful, deep, rich thinker. He had moved back from a Fulbright scholarship, I think he did in, in Harvard, and he had started a business here. And we were technically not a very strong studio, but a really dimensionally creative studio. And I had about three or four years with Andrew, but also within the office at that time, there was a collection of us, including friends who went on to be partners in future businesses like Kelvin Home. And so we had this great culture of very ambitious, passionate architects all trying to work it out at the very beginning of their career for the first time. Mm -hmm. So I think, it, you know, you'd look, it'd probably be a hot mess, but it was definitely like a bit of a hotbed of, of ambition and I think, yeah. um, will and desire to do something important. Mm -hmm. So I think it was a really important time. My, my cohort and the social context in which I existed was a really passionate, ambitious context. So for me, it became very normal that that's what you did. And I think that was a hugely important time as well, just to normalize extraordinary hard work, a lot of discussion about architecture, a lot of discussion about architects, yeah. lots and lots of hours, 
under terrible fluorescent lights, but like this idea of how, like, like maybe a bit utopian, but how do we contribute to this dialogue? How do we do something which is really meaningful and, and, and important? And I think it, the conversation just became so normal that that uh, th- there was no reason to believe anything else. Maybe if we could, were to go and start a company, we could do something really important with it or have some mm. impact. Yeah. So I worked with Andrew for four years and I met Tess also in that period. And it, it timed itself just serendipitously that in 2008, which was the GFC, Tess and I had both left our jobs and we went traveling for a year. So out of sheer luck, I had resigned at the end of 2007 with Andrew on really good terms and and deeply admiring the work that Andrew does and still does. He's an extraordinary guy. Then we spent a year traveling, Tess and I, in the course of that year where we went to various continents. uh, We also spent about a month in New York. And in New York, we spent that time with Kelvin and and his partner, Jackie, and, and Kelvin and I spoke about doing work together when I came back from um, New York. So that was towards the end of that trip. We then went on to, to Mumbai in India, spent two months in Mumbai and came back when the, there was the Mumbai bombings. Oh, gosh. Mm. So yes. we, were, we were in Mumbai during the, the bombings. We managed to, yes. to dodge it. And then it all got pretty hairy over in India. There was a lot of stuff going on between Pakistan and India at the time. Yeah. So we came home and I met back up with Kelvin and, and we agreed. That at the time, you know, it was called Tim and Ho. It was then later to be called Akin Creative and now Akin Atelier, but we just agreed that we were going to work together. And there's about four or five of us in the practice at that time. And and I worked with Kelvin for, again, about four years, and it was probably a bit of a coming-of-age story for me as a as – if, if you go back to when I met Tess, if you go back 20 years – like I was a hardcore architect, shaved head, wore only one color, no jewelry, like no ornament, very, very serious, very, very pious, far too serious. Yeah. And and I had continued that narrative and continued the, the belief in the all-powerful capacity of the brain and thinking and the intellect. And then Kelvin had been doing retail work, principally retail work, and, and it was just a totally different version yeah. of of what what I had been done which was technical and serious yes. and Kelvin was doing retail and it was commercial and it was quick and it was an incredibly difficult period of learning very very important for me to be able to hold both the seriousness and the academia and the architecture the architect's architect and also the commercial and the quick and the fun and the um brand oriented and the experiential and to be able to bring those two together i certainly don't know the value that i added in the first couple of years working with kelvin and and brought technical but not much else you were good with the pens and and i was good with cad and i could i'd spent the first 15 years of my career just doing cad work and drafting and technical it's like trying to remind the guys downstairs like i spent 15 years in front of a computer screen just Mm. moving yeah pixels i mean for me success was picking up a sheet of paper and working out the least number of mouse clicks to produce the sheet i I was like how do you (laughs) game this and make it so technically Excellent. I, I, I laugh because now David Hockney, we use iPads and David Hockney, there was an exhibition at the NGV five, six years ago and he was like, he uses the iPad and he uses Procreate and he does a playback on Procreate to see how many lines it takes for him to draw a picture. And he's like late eighties or nineties. Yeah. This concept of how do we become technically better at our craft? But for me then it was like building technical sheets of paper. So I think I had that, but I didn't have much of the other stuff. And Kelvin yeah. was 
quick and fast and creative and passionate into brands and and it took me a little while to reconcile it but it was a really important part of the education was that it could be both yes and that i learned interiors with kelvin and i hadn't really learned that prior i had learned a little bit of architecture not a lot of architecture but i learned a little bit so it was the coming together of those two voices amazing which is really valuable so it was a really valuable four years who were the architectural idols that you had in those days? There's still, I mean, there's still something that I find in modernity that's still really magical. So, like, when I was a graduate, you had Rem Koolhaas and Herzog and de Muron and Sejman Sana. Still those guys. I think the Le Cabuziers and the Louis Kahn's and the Ms. Vandros still, I mean, yes. Frank Lloyd Wright, like the, the, the intellect and the creative juice of those guys is still so timeless. I think they also built such incredible blueprint of ways of thinking of how people live and how places are put together that you can't <laughs> go wrong with it. They are the basics. They are the foundations so foundational. of what is so much of reference today. There was this thinking that I've grown to challenge. Like I think if you look at like Frank Lloyd Wright, who's this creatively clearly brilliant genius, if you if you look further into his life, into the campus that he created, like it was totally exploitative and absolutely toxic and terrible. Yeah. So I think part of it, this has been, how do you take the intellect and this incredible depth of creative thinking that these guys had? Like Ur Cabuzio is an amazing thinker and a fascist. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright is an incredible thinker and a total manipulator of people. How do you round out the skills and how do you take the depth of thinking? It was foundationally exquisite architecturally and then also bring with it the humane and the social and the the, the piece that seemed to be in at least some of those cases missing from their lexicon. Yeah. So I think the opportunity is to bring both architecture and human beings and humanity together a little bit more, mm-hmm. but, but, but they as architectural thinkers yeah. still extraordinary and they're sitting on bookshelves all around you in this room. Yeah. We still go back there. I think to your point that the fundamentals yeah. are still there. Mm-hmm. We're still dealing in principally the same materials that when we reinforced concrete we haven't shifted the dial that much yeah. those materials and that that lexicon is still here and it's still available for us albeit we need to do it cheaper and faster these days than they have had to but yeah the the thinking remains i think that the thing that has, has certainly been the last 10 years of my career is trying to turn that from a technical craft that was exquisite into a sustainable cultural craft too. Mm. And not just sustainable ecologically, which I think is critical, but also sustainably socially. How do you you create a system that can produce design of a really high standard with really great fundamental thinking, but also try, and and we, we keep trying, we keep getting this wrong, we keep learning how to try and create a culture that can be sustainable and and Mm. to do that. And the culture of the world we live in, the culture of the workforce, it is so quick to change and it's so reactive to global change, microcultural change. So creating a system that can support the architecture is really the challenge, I think, that I'm currently trying to work my way through. Just some small small goals to focus on. (laughs) So when did you feel it was right to start your own practice? I, I, I never did. I'm not a good self-motivating practitioner i was really really comfortable to work with other people and have always been really comfortable to work with other people the point at which we founded alexander and co which was in 2013 wasn't so much 
I'm ready to start my own business. It was the context in which I'm working just is not sustainable. It's not transparent. It's not equitable enough. There was just some fundamental pieces that were missing to, to the value set under which I wanted to trade at the time. So it was more like a, I have almost no client base, but one guy. And I, at the time had two kids at home, Tess wasn't working. And I had something of a context where there was an economic pillow for about six months. And so what I said is, look, I'll just give this a bit of a crack, but it would be totally misleading to say that I had this burning entrepreneurial desire to start my business at no point ever. And, and really one of the things that I have tried to do and now have is to build a system of other people who are co-collaborators in the ownership of the organization. So, so no, I work really well with people. Um, although many people would disagree with that. <laughs> I, I work well with people in so far as I pre prefer. Yeah. And for me working within a, a group where there's other voices, where the outcomes and also downsides are shared mm -hmm. is, is way more important to me than having a company in air quotes. If yeah. that makes sense. Yes. Where did the name come from? Mm. So it's my middle name, Alexander. I, I had a hunch that that would be what what it was <laughs> the the sense that i have have had and continue to have is that if if we are going to create an organization which can outlast and out mm -hmm. is that it has to be only loosely fitted to me mm. and so the idea of a name that was more representational than literal was really important so from the very beginning the idea of using a name which had a connection to me, but not very tightly. And so Alexander and Co is a, a suggestion of a company, which I have a relationship with, but, but could equally hand or give or share. And the idea of succession and the idea of creating a company, which can outlast me and have some idealistic value that goes way beyond me and hopefully way beyond my kids. That was really important how we named the company that just wasn't attached to me yes. yeah. and that everyone else who wanted to could also own the name. Mm. So it's a family name. It's a name that's been moved through various generations. It's a name that sits quietly here between my first and my last. It's a, a gorgeous name that I think has a historic value for me because it was a made up name again for my, my family. Um, but, but the most valuable thing is it it's not a name that, matters much it's just a name that anyone else can share yeah love that we'll be right back after this short break for affordable stylish and quality tiles di lorenzo really are the best in the biz it's a family-run business with over 40 years experience and today the business is now run by four sisters who share a passion for beautiful tiles di lorenzo stock many exclusive collections of indoor tiles suitable for bathrooms laundry kitchen interior flooring and also a broad range of outdoor pavers too you can view their products in store at their locations throughout new south wales or online just visit www.dilorenzo.com.au and follow them on Instagram at dilorenzo underscore tiles. Now let's get back to the chat. That brings us into the present right now. So how would you describe the Alexander & Co signature design aesthetic? Mm. Like I think that you were touching on the architects who inspire. I think because my, I have a hope that we can do work that's remains valuable and I have a hope that we can do work even if it's fluff and interiors and transient that we can do work that has value 
ideally I would like to do work that has no need to be replaced. So I think that part of what I would like to be able to do and, and wish for us to succeed somehow is to create work that feels important insofar it gives value to the people who created it creatively, it pushes them, it gives value to the people who inhabit it. And it is able to stick around and doesn't need to be replaced as much for the ecology and for the reduction in waste as for the, if we get it right, like the Le Corbusier is, it just should be right because it's fundamentally right, whatever that means. And I don't yet know. So I think there is this challenge that we, I think, have to sit within both the zeitgeist, but also within the history and bring the two together. The word that gets used, I think, is timelessness. Timelessness exists in all times, and it's founded in something which was important and historical, and it's founded in something which is contemporary and future forward. If we are only in the past, we are reproduction, and I think if we're only in the future, we're trend. So I think the challenge is, is amalgamating timeframes and producing something which can sit in all of them. Yeah. Mm. And the benefit of that is that it can outlast us and hopefully not have to be replaced. Well, it's creating that sustainable practice on every level that you were yeah. talking about where, yes, for the planet, it's a sustainable project, so to speak, but not having to replace, not having to yeah, that... renovate and update. And yeah. also, I mean, for so many people, it's such a privilege to be able to do this once, to yeah. build their house mm. and their home once. Yeah, that's right. And you get it right. Yeah, you, you don't, you have don't, to, you don't, don't have need to, to do it again. Do it again. Yeah. That, look, that's the hope. Yeah. So, so I think to answer, to try and start answering the question, the intention is to do things that can last mm. and that can feel valuable now but for a long time. Yeah. And, and I think there is there is something of a language that can come out of that because I think there are some materials that do that really well and some materials that do that less well. Um, so I think that we sometimes get asked about our style and maybe we have a style or maybe I'm being naive, but I think it's more like we have a flavor or a tone and the tone and the flavor is probably built in part based on the culture that tends to cultures tend to replicate things if it's been done before it's probably okay to do it again like systems of people look for safety in templates in repetition if i carve that off and say forget about that i think that the tone is a re response to materials and systems and tools which we have found can last if i find say something which is built out of a solid wood which has a tone and a texture it tends not to need to be replaced in the same way that a veneer with a smoothness, when it gets dented, it looks bad. When an old piece of wood, which is solid, gets dented, it looks good. Yeah. So what you tend to find is that the material lexicon and the decisions that you make at a tactile level are a response to what just gets better as it gets older. Mm. And then I think if you look at the architecture that sits behind it, it's still informed a lot by moder modernity. So like in, the, in this building, the flavor is not at all modern, but if you look at the planning, it's very modern. Yeah. Mm. If you look at the the tone, the tonality, and the materials, it feels like a bit antiquated and a bit old. I think that. Well, I think it also the word I would use for a lot of your projects is they feel classic, and mm. it speaks to what you're talking about. That maybe I'm getting that classic feel from the materiality, mm. but the actual function and space itself that maybe we don't get as much from imagery mm. that we're looking at but the actual function of it then does have that modernity you're talking about. 
Yeah, I look, I think you're right. I and mean, you you'll walk around here and you'll it's it's a quirky little piece of construction, but you totally don't read that in, in the images and the reality is that marketing is sold through these vignettes and sold through these images. Yes. <laughs> and and piecing this thing together, you have to really be in the in the space to experience. Absolutely. I, I've just being in this space, I mean the, all the images that we've seen, stunning. Mm-hmm. But just to be in it is just a whole other level with the feeling, just all the materials that you used and how you put them together. Mm. Um, I know it's very difficult for me right now to fully focus. Yeah, <laughs> not just be like it's just looking so around beautiful. the room because the textures are gorgeous, like on the wall, the Venetian plaster, and then, you know. And we'll share all these images on our Insta as well. But for our listeners, just to give them a bit of context, we are at your HQ where your workplace yes. is. Yeah, um, and it's. Is this the library? Would you say? Yeah. <laughs> It's it's gone under a bunch of names, yeah. often called the trophy room. Yeah, oh, love it. <laughs> so we, we like I have this vision that Alexander and Co have this campus, and there's the idea was it'd be really beautiful if we got to move between these buildings. So I've lived next door for mm-hmm. 13 or so years, and then we bought this property in 2019, and we built the building new. So in 2003, in the first year of um, COVID, we actually built this building, and then last year we built we bought. The one of the other terraces that backs onto okay. the garden, and we've just done a little project on that. So there is something of a vision of having this cute little campus where mm. people move between these buildings and they all have a different flavour. But this was the f- the first one and the first time we had built a building for us. Prior to this, we had rented in various warehouses in in say Surrey Hills, and this is the first time we were able to be both our client and also. I didn't realize you live literally next door. Yeah. Next door, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we we've got these three buildings, and yeah. look, one of the foundational things was I wanted the kids to be able to be part of my life as a working professional and also yeah. Tessa's. So the idea of bringing the the office directly next to it, there's a little cute door that connects the oh, two right. cool yep. was that just the kids could participate in the experience and being part of the office yeah. yeah and and so we just we've decided to keep bolting on these buildings as we go just to keep the whole thing fun and yep. surprising yep. and close yep. that's really cool yeah and it's great that you don't have a commute every day no commute. time efficient <laughs> it's really efficient i hate <laughs> sitting in a car yeah and also great that you can spend more time with your family as well and they come, they come across most of the, the teenagers don't anymore, but the, yeah. the, little, the little guys come across and they what's ever in the kitchen and say hi, and that's yeah. really lovely. Yeah. Oh, that's sweet. So what is in this building of Alexander House? You've got your, it's your workplace. Yes. Home's next door, but what's actually in here? No, I think the context is, so I'm 44 now. I was 40 when we did this and, and had never done something like this before. And also we're in the 11th year of business, but... I think one of the challenges of being a founding owner of a business is there there is a suspicion at some point that someone's going to find you out and the whole thing's going to be up. And so I was like, how do we do a, an office but totally hedge our bets in case this whole fantasy collapses? And so the concept was, well, if we build a house that can also be an office, if it turns out that the world realizes that I do not know how to run a business, <laughs> then at least it can be a house. Yeah. And so that you're going back pre-COVID before the idea of working mm-hmm. from home at all. It was just not a concept. Mm. But that was the concept was simply to hedge against my failure was I'll make an office that's a house and that's really easily reversible as a house. Yeah. So that was the context of how we designed this was that there's four levels. There's a loft upstairs, 
which has a bathroom. There's the, the, this, the mezzanine, which is where we're sitting in, which also has a bathroom at the end of the hall, kitchen, living space, and then downstairs is basement. And in all of the planning, it can be retrofitted to become a house without too many moves. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then all we did is we just didn't do all the work. We, we just didn't complete the work of the house and we left it. If you go downstairs, it's a big kind of concrete bunker. So the, there has remained this concept. If we, if we had to reverse it, we could reverse it. But that was really the origin. We called it Alexander House because it's like a house. Yeah. It was just yeah. incomplete. Yeah. And then lo and behold, COVID comes along and we're like, oh, this whole working from home thing. But the origin of this was we wanted to be able to one, I needed to be able to convince myself that this was a financially sensible yes. thing to do. <laughs> and the other thing was, we're like, well, it would be really great if clients could come in and they could see how all of these materials and fixtures all come together. So we were doing a lot of housing, a lot of residential. Like, why don't we build a little pretend house as well? And they clients can come in and just use all the fixtures and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And we had visions. And we, like, if you're a client, you get your own door code, your own personal code, and we can come in. And the idea was, what would happen if if actually Alexandra House was almost like a members club and the clients would come in and they could use their own coffee machine and sit and work and none of that ended up transpiring. <laughs> but, but they do have their own personal code so they can come and go as they wish. But that was the foundation of it. COVID came along, working from home became a thing and then suddenly it recontextualised the whole project. But yes. but really this was it's a small f- footprint office where each level has its own different function because of the constraints of the footprint. And that was really the origin of it. And it was financially secure enough that I was able to back the plan and feel confident in doing so. And, and then we, we've, when we've done it with what we call now the workshop, which, is, which backs onto us, the same thing. Each floor has a function and it just allows you to know really clearly if you're part of the team where, where you go for whatever yeah, yeah. function you need to use. Yeah. So how many people do you have in your whole team now? It's about 30 so there's about 30 in the team, yeah. I mean, yeah. enough to fill a house yeah. or two. Yeah, a couple of terraces, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow, 30, that's huge. That's an impressive amount of people. Yeah, look, it's, it's a nice system. There, 30 people allows us enough specificity so we can have like an admin department, which has a general manager and an assist office assistant and a resource manager. So we, again, it has afforded us so far enough scale that we can have some specialization, some specialization with the project team as well. Yeah, amazing. I think when we were smaller than this, people had to do a lot more jack of all trading. And I think that where we are at with the project complexity that we're working on, we just needed a little bit more specificity within our within our skill sets, what we would call a little bit more vertical vertical skills. So we have people who are able to specialize. At 20, you had to be a bit more round and, and it just wasn't, enough yeah. depth for the project complexity that we're dealing with. Yeah. So we have we have projects now which are up to 150 million and the average house these days is 5 to 15 million. At sub 5 you can knock this together and make a few mistakes and the stakes are high but they're not mm. deadly high. At 15 million dollars the stakes become very very high and the accountability becomes very very high. So we yeah. felt that we had to grow the team to get to the scale that could adequately service our clients and also the projects that we had. Yeah, fair enough. Mm. At, those numbers, yeah. at those numbers, there is an expectation yeah. of what is being delivered yeah. as yeah. well. Yeah. Absolutely. Not that you don't have an expectation at a $2 million house, it, but it, it's sh- a different... It shifts. Yeah. Yeah. Stakes are higher. There's shifts yeah. and clients are expecting... Um, again, we're, it's 11th year, but what we realise is that 
the level of accountability, the level of consultancy, it just kept it just kept growing, and the yeah. the level of detail management, risk control, like you just go wow, it just it just keeps going, and so just meeting that, making sure we've met that by allowing the team to be both trained bringing in laterally people who had way more specific skills that's sort of been the journey of the last 11 years at the beginning when it's you and you're just doing a bunch of average stuff and you're the guy yeah to now where you're doing really complex specific stuff and there's a whole bunch of people understanding that change organizationally is a big part of it well also now that you have this amazing showcase of your work in a physical thing where your clients can visit as well you're really showcasing every detail that you and your firm is yeah Yeah. capable of yeah yeah so what does a typical day look like for you like especially managing so many people well that would be the first misnomer i don't manage anyone so we have within our team as it sits at the moment we have a general manager and tess who does it is the director of our marketing and shelby who's our associate and me who sit in the leadership circle and so our that executive committee makes this, the decisions with regard to the business strategy. Mm-hmm. General management and marketing run an admin department, but then Shelby and I run the project teams. And the project teams have about seven or eight seniors who are tenured for more than 10 years who run the projects, day-to-day production of the projects. So my reporting circle is actually only the leadership. Yeah. And then the senior team by and large reports to to Shelby. So I don't manage that many people. I'm involved in some management and I sit in all new projects, but I don't do the day-to-day of them. So mostly my life is held between marketing and the organizational vision and the execution of we'll do we do trimesterly offsites we turn those into objective key results and then we have these trimesterly sprints towards modifying the organization to the next offsite yeah. so i'm involved in all the organizational moves and helping make sure the departments are doing what they need to to do to get to the next goal yeah. but then the the project work it's it, for me it's only creative is no management so yeah. if, if a senior is running a project my role is work and and helping just to move it in the right creative direction and that it'll be more or less depending on that senior's particular skills or the complexity of the project so if we're doing a a new type of project which is really complex and lumpy i'll be in it a lot Mm -hmm. if it's a project type that we've done a lot of and we have a really enculturated system for i'll be less involved and i'll just set the brand and set the planning so meetings i do a lot of meetings mm-hmm. and I, I draw i still hold a pen mm-hmm. now it's not a lamy it's a it's a twisby which is a different pen holds more ink mm-hmm. but it's it's principally that conversations and drawing with a pen still remains the, the majority of my day and i do a lot of writing actually more so than i ever written before writing creative synopsis writing creative briefs providing feedback to the senior team written, written diagnosis of things so yeah yeah did you ever imagine that Becoming an architect, having your own firm would look like this. No, no, not like, not only not like this, but because it changes all the time, I never really know what it's also going to change into. Mm. So I, I think I had a conception as a younger designer that architecture was mostly sitting and drawing lines. Yeah. I think as it's gone on, lots of new frontiers have opened up. It's, it's much more for me now about people and helping to create an environment and ecosystem where people can learn and grow. 
there's been a hell of a lot of coaching that I've got along the way, some mentoring, still now a lot of active coaching from, we have business coaches and, and adult developmental psychologists who help with us to coach. So a lot of my work now is trying to become a better version of myself principally because I, I'm, like I said to you earlier, much more introverted, way better with a pen than I am with people, but then also to work out how to create those into systems and processes and an ecosystem where other people can also thrive and grow. So that, had no expectation that it would be so much skewed towards the people. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And also after 15 years, it must be nice to be able to just be delegated to the pen role and the sketching role rather than having to still be at a computer. It, look, <laughs> and I love to draw and I've always loved to draw, but I think the thing is I see now we use ArchiCAD and there's twin motion and all this, the, yeah. the, the guys and girls who are using the tools are so good at them. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm just, It'd take me 10 years just to sit back at a computer to get that good. Yeah, and yeah. My, the, my highest and best use of time is just no longer there. Yeah. Mm. So I think it's just the, part of the development of my role that my value is no longer in that space. Yeah. yeah. And so looking ahead, where do you see Alexander and Co in 10 years? Mm. Look, I have... I mean, you've set the bar pretty high of where you are right uh, now. <laughs> I'm flattered. Look, I, I, think, I think that... There is a really important role that any organization plays. It's at least twofold. One is I think we have a very important role now within the, the time in which we exist to alter our relationship with our environment. And I think a lot of that is a result of industry changing how it goes from an exploitative relationship to a symbiotic relationship. So how do we go from taking resources to returning resources? So I think one of one of the overarching visions here is how do we fix more things than we break? Mm. So the ecology, the relationship with land, with environment, with past culture, I think is, is one thing. Our, our company absolutely has a role, as do many, many companies and bureaucracies to, to repatriate, to fix, to heal. We have a discipline, which is architecture, and I think we have, because of that, a responsibility to use our architecture to do that work. The other bit, which is way more bloody complex, is we do it through the people who do the work. So on the other side of that coin is you cannot change your relationship with our, with our ecology. You cannot bring a greater amount of um, sustainability to this without also helping to grow human beings and that requires an awful lot of intelligence that i'm only just getting my head around which is that we we need to change both a culture of short term and trauma recovery and all of the instantaneous dopamine fueled crap that human beings do and actually paint a picture of a version of the world where it could be sustainable and long term And that as a cultural challenge is really big. You're taking a 20-something-year-old person, you paint a version of a world where actually they don't work for a shitty company that's there to exploit them. You, they contribute to a culture that is there to heal and mend, and that that is a long, long discussion yeah. that, that I don't think a lot of people are yet ready for. We're still really belong to a crappy patriarchal version of the world where you take what you can, you make what you can, and you get the hell out of there and shifting that to we're here. And the term like, let's burn the boats. Like, how do you burn the boats and go, no, stay here. This is not just what you can technically learn and put in your bank in the next three years. This is what we can as a system alter 
not just within this company, within all of the ecosystem to make this a better world full stop. So I think the, the, the vision of building people to build a company and a culture that can heal and fix things outside of us, I think is remains a pillar of that 10 year vision. But then I think in order to do that, we have to do work, which is really great. So I think that the, the idea of the work and the architecture being beautiful, being commercial, being able to sustain itself as a business, being important and valuable and be able to create revenue for someone else or a beautiful home for someone else, that's really the tool that we have to do the more important work. So I think I would like to remain with our North Star, which is that we're here to um, stay for a really long time, doing really important work that heals with people who we learn how to better enculturate and to help them to open up their perception of the world as a as a great place to participate in rather than a shitty place that exploits and should be exploited and to do that we have to do really good work that feels timeless that adds to our pillars but also feels important to the zeitgeist that photographs really beautifully that yeah. creates revenue for people selling beer that can do all that work too so we have to do all of it to create a an an internationally renowned business that does really important work that's really beautiful and timeless for sure. But that's the supporting story. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's such an interesting approach of where it's ended up leading you to of that you are thinking so much about the future, the future of, of this brand, what it could look like without you as well, and that the messaging that and the ethos that you've started from the very start is still there and yeah. still continues. And I think that's really a pretty amazing way to approach yes. a company. Yeah. I look, I think that there's nothing proprietary to us about that thinking. I think if you go to like Indigenous or First Nations cultures, the, the entire system is built around succession. And it's succession of culture and it's handing over of a landscape which remains sustainable for every other generation. Like I think if you just picked up some of the cultural pillars, which I know only a tiny, tiny little bit about, but the whole sense that the culture is built around succession yeah. and replace succession with any other word, it's simply the stewardship yeah. from one generation to a next. It's a beautiful goal it's potentially can sound like a totally trite and lofty goal for a company but i would like it to be ours too yeah i think there's so much merit to it it's maybe not a conversation that is had often in this design industry where so much is about newness and now but so much of the design industry does feel like new what's new what's new yeah just think and it's not about like yeah what's being on trend they're not really thinking about the longevity yeah and how it impacts people and our environment so thank you we'll wrap up with our fast five sure to end with so number one is what's your favorite design destination Uh, how how big is the destination as big or small as you want it to be (laughs) i i think our landscape is an incredible design destination i think i will try and go into the bush whenever i can and at the same time tess and i came back from uh, new york last week because it's just a total smorgasbord of of past and present creative thought. Like, I think it's everywhere. I get off on all of the different lexicons out there, both architectural and non-architectural. Yeah. Who are some creative people that you admire? Now doing work, I like, I think that if, if you just look around Sydney and just stay local, 
there are there is work that's so smart design i mean like i do every time i see a new building by those guys i'm like geez they're so smart the, the intellect coming out of that office is incredible so i so i think we have we have a a plethora of creative intelligence in this in this country i think australia has a very unique design style there just seems to be this amazing melting pot of yeah, designers that are coming up that are really establishing, establishing themselves, themselves. your <laughs> peers as well that we've really got this incredibly unique australian design language oh, yeah. you see that we work there like richards and spencer's doing in brisbane it's so good like yeah. it's just so clever I think there is a lot. There's a lot of voices just to, to name those those two and Spence. Like I think there is so much cleverness. Yeah. Um locally, for sure. Cool. And what's your favorite design era or architect or design style? I I if I could mash up Le Cabuzier and Axel Vervoot, Vervoot, yep. just pronounce his yep. name badly. Like I think yeah, yeah, modernity is still is a thing that keeps keeps appearing. The whole mid-century language i think i can't escape it my arbitrary starting point is always mid-century i have to be shaken out of it <laughs> but then also this the, the belgians the tactile rich the heritage the age the shade the shadow that you see coming from guys like axel are just uh, just awesome nice. do you have a quote or a phrase that you live by oh i have so many i i quote i'll give you an easy Please one if, do. If, if you're gonna bow bow low it's a japanese quote around respect respect it's yeah. actually used in in zen i think if you're gonna do something go all in yeah yeah if you're gonna do something don't hedge your bets just go all in it's certainly the mo that we try and uh, foster around here if you're gonna do it just go for it yeah yeah don't sit on the fence right. and last one Favorite place to eat? Yeah, in uh, Sydney. Yeah. yeah, probably Nomad. Nomad nice. in Surrey. Yeah. I went there the other day. Yeah. It was. I feel like I hadn't been for so many years for whatever reason. There's always yeah. new places popping up in Sydney to try. Yeah, I went back the other day and yeah. I was like, oh my goodness, I forget how good it is there. <laughs> oh, it's it's phenomenal, and I love because they have that C.J. Hendry, the drawing of the skull, which yeah. is yeah. the first ever commit work yeah. on the wall. Okay, yeah. Like, I just love that too, that they have this, this moment where she got commissioned to do something and didn't know how to do it, so did this dot painting with a pen and how that became then the foundation of this incredible career that you see now. And then you got the food and the whole ambient experience. Yeah. It's just a beautiful special occasion place to go there as, as often as we can afford. Yes, yeah, yeah. Nice. for sure. Love it. Well, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, it's thank my you pleasure. for joining us. It's my pleasure. Amazing. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much to Jeremy for joining us on the House of Style. You can follow Alexander and Co on Instagram at Alexander underscore and Co. For more info on our guest and inspiration, head to our Instagram at House of Style Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Carrie underscore Jones underscore stylist and at Jono.Fleming. Thanks for listening to the House of Style.